If you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to hang out there in just a moment or two. Uh, but I want to just think about an uh, issue that we deal with sometimes when we're reading a, a book particularly if you've been assigned to read a long book. Maybe you're reading it for fun. Maybe you're reading it for school. Maybe it's fiction. Maybe it's nonfiction. But one of the things is when we start to read the book, we start to get lost as to who everybody is. You ever have that problem? Uh, whether you're reading a Shakespeare uh, work or whether you're reading a, a long uh, book that you're just trying to figure out, who is everybody in this? Uh, every once in a while, what a book will do to help us out in the process is it'll give us some pages up front and says, this is who everybody is. And then they give us the name. And, and boy, I want to kind of bookmark that so at any time in the rest of the book that their name pops up, we can come back and take a look and see who that person is. Uh, I do most of my reading these days on audible books. And so the other day I was reading a, a book and it was a, a long presidential biography and, and all of a sudden they got to this section of the front of the book. It just started listing name. This is who they are. Name. This is who they are. At the beginning of the book it was really, really boring. But at the same time I'm like, I have to memorize this so I can remember who everybody else in the rest of the book so that the rest of the book will make sense because I don't have that ability to turn to it. Sometimes it would be nice if our Bibles had that feature, wouldn't it? There in, in, in kind of the opening pages of the Bible, just be able to see everybody's name and say, okay, who is this person and, and how do they matter? Who is this person and where do they fit into the rest of the story? Particularly if you're kind of new at interacting with the Word of God, then, 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 then you really kind of say, boy, sometimes all of these names kind of wash over me, and I sit in church, and it seems like everybody else knows who they're talking about, but I don't know who these people are, and I, I'd like to know who is this person, and why do they matter, and how do they fit into the rest of the story? In these days, as we're examining the church in Ephesus, as it shows up at different points in the New Testament, one of the names that we keep mentioning every once in a while is the name of Paul. Paul is really one of the most familiar names in the entire Bible. His name in the New Testament is second only to, anyone want to guess? That's right, Jesus. That, that Jesus comes in first place uh, by a long shot. And then Paul is the second most common name in the New Testament. And so sometimes you may say, okay, I hear about Paul all the time, but, but who is this guy? You know, it's interesting that there are quite a few people in Paul's time that were asking the same question. Who is this guy? You see, part of the time Paul was... He, he was kind of an abrupt figure. Uh, and sometimes Paul came across really, really strong. And sometimes Paul would be uh, abrasive. And so every once in a while people would say, dude, who are you, man? Who, who, who do you think you are? Who, what gives you the right to do these things? In fact, one of the letters that Paul writes, 2 Corinthians, is basically a whole list of arguments back and forth to a group of people in a church that say, who are you? Well, what gives you the right to say any of the things that you're saying? And, and who says that what you're saying is the right thing that we have to do? Who, who are you? Well, we see a little bit of that 
that strong, abrasive personality from, from Paul here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a letter that he writes uh, to his right-hand man, Timothy, who is functioning as pastor uh, in the church in Ephesus. And if you just take a look at this first chapter, here in the first several verses, verses 3 to 7, Right at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, listen, Timothy, I need to give you a warning. There are certain people in the church that are causing difficulty. And he just keeps talking about that, certain people. And I think that's a funny phrase, certain people, because what happens here is that Paul knows who they are, and Timothy knows who they are, but they've kind of agreed we're not going to mention their names. But if I say certain people and you hear certain people, we, we know who we're talking about. And Paul's just kind of saying, listen, we've got problems with certain people who are doing certain things. But then at the end of the chapter, he says, you know what, let's go ahead and name names. And at the end of the chapter, he starts to list a couple of the people that are part of that certain people kind of group. And he says, listen, these people are causing so much difficulty and division inside of the life of the church. Paul says, I hand them over to Satan. Like, you know what, they just need to live with the consequences of what they're doing. Now, if you happen to pick up a copy of Paul's letter to Timothy, and you're one of those certain people, you're one of the people that he just listed by name, that he was going to hand over to Satan, you know what your question would be? Who is this guy? Who, who does this guy think that he is, that he has the right, the privilege, the authority to make these kinds of statements? Who, who, who is this guy? So, so we can kind of look at it and say, listen, I don't know my Bible that well. Who, who is this guy? Uh, some people say, well, I don't know what his background is. Who is this guy? Other people can say, man, I don't like what he's saying. Who is this guy? But you know what? I think my favorite part of this question is that I don't know if anyone asked the question more often than Paul did. <laughs> who is this guy? How did I get to where I am right now? How did I experience what I'm experiencing right now? What gives me the authority to be here? You see, I think that Paul spent the second half of his life pinching himself saying, how on earth did I get here? How on earth did I get to be in this role, this position, this authority, this influence? How, how, how did I get here? You know, the question that I want us to think about this morning is, in part, who is Paul? But I really kind of want to use this as an opportunity for us to kind of lean in a little bit and just kind of get a little bit introspective for ourselves. I mean, you probably saw that coming. The question that I want us to think about this morning is, who am I? What gives me the right? What what? Why is it that I stand where I stand with God? What has positioned me in this place? If someone were to whisper behind my back, and I'm sure that no one ever does that to you, but if someone were to whisper behind your back and say, who does that person think they are? Who is that? What gives that person the right? How would you answer that question? Now, some of us have personalities that we wonder about that question like 25 hours a day. Who am I? You know, what gives me the right? Others are like once every 25 years you stop and think about that question. But the reality is I think we ask that question. And so I want us to think about this question. Who is this guy? And at the same time, I want us to be thinking about our own life and say, who am I? And how do I stand? So I want to come back here to 1 Timothy 
in that first chapter. And what I want to see here is that at the beginning of that chapter, he's talking about those certain people, you know who they are. And at the end, he said, well, let me tell you who they are. And he starts to list some of the names. But in the middle of that, in the middle of that, he says, this is who I am. You ready? Cool. <laughs> Verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's who Paul is. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we seek to understand information we also want to experience inspiration. Lord, we want to learn about Paul, but we want to see ourselves. And Lord, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, we want to finish this passage of Scripture in the same way that Paul does, lifting up your name and praising you and standing up and saying, this is the honor and the glory that belongs to him forever and ever. Lord, I pray that you be with us as we walk that journey together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy? The first thing that I would say, and this is kind of fun, because this kind of comes from one of the songs that we sing every once in a while, but number one is Paul was who God says he was. Paul was who God says he was. If you take a look here at verse 12, you can almost underline these words. He says he's given me strength. He's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So how would you describe Paul? You could simply describe him as a strong, faithful servant. Man, I'd like that. Man, I'd like the word of God to describe me in that way. I'd like at the end of my life, I would like maybe some folks to stand up and say about me and say that was a strong, faithful servant of God. I bet you there's a hunger inside of you to have someone say that same kind of truth about your life, that you were a strong, faithful servant of God. Not only do I, would I, I like someone to say that about me, but not only would I like someone to say that about you, but what, it, what we'd really like is for God to say that about us, that that is a strong, faithful servant. But what I want you to notice about this is that each one of those pieces, strong, faithful servant, are only true in Paul's life because God made them true in his life. You see that in verse 12? He has given me strength. He doesn't say, I am strong. He says, I'm so grateful for Jesus Christ who has given me strength. It says, who has found me to be faithful. Now listen, we're going to see in just a few moments, we saw it in the reading of the text, Paul wasn't faithful. Paul was a train wreck. 
But somehow God looked at him and found him or declared him to be faithful. And Paul didn't earn the right to be a servant. God appointed him to be a servant. So who is this guy? He is a strong, faithful servant. How did that happen? God did it. Now the emphasis here is on Paul as servant. We know that because every time he introduces himself, he says, I'm called of God to be a servant of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he'd always say. Well, what do you want to talk about, Paul? Well, the fact that I'm called of God and a servant of Jesus Christ. And that, that's how he opened every single conversation. Like, Paul, you got any other songs you can sing? No, I'm called of God to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so every once in a while, if Paul came across brusque, if he came across difficulties, he came across bossy, as he came across whatever, it was solely when he was functioning in that role as a servant of Jesus Christ, saying, I must accomplish the mission that Jesus has given to me. That's who this guy is. He's a servant of Christ. Now, the role of servant is an interesting role. It has what we call limitations. A servant and the master are not the same thing. In fact, the servant is only qualified in authority when he is doing what the master wants him to do. Now, I kind of learned this lesson a little bit when I was growing up with my brothers. I was the oldest of three brothers, as I pointed out this morning, also the better-looking one of the three brothers, the smartest one of the three brothers, and the funnier one of the three brothers. Just ask them, oh, they're not here? I'm sure they would have said yes. Uh, so, so in that role of being the oldest and all of those other things as well, there were times in which my parents would leave the house. And I was in charge. And they would leave the house, and I had authority over the house. But here's the thing. My authority had limits. My authority was limited to the place in which what I said only counted if it echoed the authority of my parents. So, I had authority to say you cannot eat all of the ice cream. Because that's what my parents would have said. In fact, in our house, I had authority to say you can't eat any of the ice cream because that was special occasions. I had the authority to say don't play in the street because that's what my parents would have said. But I did not have the authority to say, uh, why don't you fellows go clean my room for a bit? Not that I might have tried that. I did not have the authority to say, okay, nobody's allowed to speak for the next hour. Not that I would have tried that. I did not have the authority to say, bring me a hot pocket on a silver platter. I don't know if hot pockets had been invented then or not, but, but you get the idea. There's a limit to my authority. I could only have the authority that says, this is the will of, of my parents. Paul has authority, but only as far as he echoes the, the authority, the will, the plan of the master who is Jesus and what his purpose is. You know, another way for us to say this, and it's a way that we've been trying to say this quite a bit these days, is that, that Paul was responsible for living inside of the patterns, the priority, and the purpose of Jesus. He had authority as long as he was living inside of that pattern, priorities, and purpose of Jesus. 
Oh, what do we mean by that? The pattern of Jesus is to live the way Jesus lived. That is, Jesus was a person of prayer. Jesus was a person of worship. Jesus was a person of obedience. And so if I really want to be a servant of Christ, I want to be a disciple of Christ, then I have to have those same patterns. I have to be a person of prayer. I have to be a person of worship. I have to be a person of, I have to be a person of prayer and worship and obedience. We also talk about the priorities. Let's, let's, zero in and think about the priorities of how Jesus lived his life and his ministry. And one of the things that we see is that Jesus cared for the people who were weak. Jesus cared for the vulnerable, the downtrodden, the people who were discouraged, the people who were overlooked. That was a priority for Jesus. And if I'm going to be a servant of Jesus, I have to have those same priorities where I don't look after myself and I don't just even look after others, but I have to find the person who has the greatest need and is being overlooked by others, and then that becomes my priority. And in terms of the purpose of Jesus, he tells us what this is clearly. Go into all the world, preach the Gospels, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is our purpose of Jesus, that is the purpose of Jesus, that as many people as possible as many people who draw a breath become fully devoted followers of him. And so Paul's authority as a servant, as a follower of Christ, was only as strong as the way in which he measured to the patterns, the priorities, and the purpose of Jesus. And I, I, I would love someone to call me a strong, faithful servant, but that'll only be true as my life matters measures up to the patterns, the priorities, and purpose of Jesus. Paul was who Jesus says he was. But also I want you to see here that Paul was, Paul was unexpected. I love this. Even though he was strong, faithful, and a servant of Jesus, do you know that nobody would have voted on that in his high school yearbook? Nobody would have written in the class of 20 high school yearbook, and for the Apostle Paul, it wouldn't have been apostrophe 20. It would have been just 20 because You know, I didn't give that to the first service this morning. I didn't think they were ready for that. I saved that for, for this service. Nobody would have voted on Paul to be most likely to be a strong, faithful servant of Jesus. In fact, take a look at this in verse 13. It tells us that Paul describes himself. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer. I would curse the name of God. I was a persecutor. I sought to destroy lives. I was an insolent opponent. We call it oppositional defiance. I was against everything, particularly the movements of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he even says in verse 15, Jesus Christ came in to save sinners. And when we line up all the sinners in the world, I was first in line. I think it's interesting. I think I can almost picture a scene in heaven where Jesus is filling out the team sheet for his team. And he writes down Paul's name at the center of that team. She says, I'm going I'm to build a team around this guy, Paul. And someone awkwardly, they just kind of look at each other. And someone awkwardly steps up and tells Jesus, um, I don't think you can use him. He's not on our team. 
You can't put him on your team. In fact, if you were to ask him, he is opposite of your team. He is opposed to you with everything you have. You can't include him. He's not on our team. To which I think Jesus would have chuckled. I think he would have said, oh, that's right. You can only see today. I can see tomorrow. He's on the team. And I'm going to use him. Because what it looks like as a person who is far off from me is going to become one of my choice servants over the passage of time. You can only see today, but I see tomorrow. See, Paul calls himself that chief of sinners. Man, I, I, I don't know how they give out the title chief of sinners. I don't know what the categories are, but, but I would tell you this. I think it's getting more and more competitive all the time. You see, we live in a culture that wants no boundaries for our lives today. And in fact, we've turned the seven deadly sins into a bucket list. And we've set a timer and said, let me see how fast I can knock every one of these off. Is it possible that you worry that you might find yourself in the running for chief of sinners? Is it possible that you might look at your life, look at yesterday, look at last week, look at the last decade? Say, I don't know how they give that out. But man, I'm afraid I might, I might get a nomination. Is it possible that you look at your life and you, and you see the world crumbling down around you? Is it possible that you look at life and you see the world crumbling down inside of you? And you wonder, what, what if I'm in the middle of that competition? Maybe you don't think that way at all. Maybe you look at life and say, you know what, I'm doing great. Okay, maybe not great, but I'm doing pretty good. In fact, I'm doing better than most people. You know what? In the time, Paul would have put himself in that category of I'm doing great. He wouldn't have even settled for doing pretty good. He would have said, I'm doing great. He said, in fact, if you would have lined up how hard people were trying to do the right thing, he said, I would have been at the front of that line. But what he says here. He says, but mercy, but he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says, I look back at it now and I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I was the chief of sinners. I thought I was doing so great. But then I suddenly saw what Jesus sees. And it flipped my whole life upside down. It flipped my whole life upside down. Either way, whether you see yourself as a person who is living in the running for being chief of sinners or whether you're a person who says, oh, I'm doing good enough. Either way, there's enough mercy to cover all of it. In fact, that's what Paul says. He said there was mercy even though that I acted in ignorant unbelief. Maybe it's because you only see today 
but Jesus sees tomorrow. I mean, maybe you're discouraged and say, there's no way that I can make it ever right with God. Well, that's today, but Jesus sees tomorrow. Paul is also, if you were to see how he describes himself, Paul also would say, I'm a test case. Paul is a test case. In fact, there's this question, why would Paul, why would God take Paul, why, why Paul? If he was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a cursor of God, a person who was just always ready to fight against the things of God, why, why would God take the chief of sinners and put him at the front of his church? That doesn't make sense. Wouldn't you want to choose someone that hadn't spent so much time so far away saying the exact opposite things of what his message was going to be? It was going to look bad. We, we, we don't like it when politicians flip-flops and change teams. Man, Paul had the ultimate flip-flop in his life. He wanted to eliminate the name of Jesus. And now he wants to make the name of Jesus ring for all of eternity. It's a flip-flop. Why, why would God raise up Paul in this way? Because it's a message for every other broken person ever. You may feel at the peak of brokenness. You may feel like life is crumbling down around you. You may feel like it's crumbling down inside of you. You may feel hopeless. But Paul screams across the centuries and says, He saved me. And he will save you. I don't know how you see yourself. I don't know when the last time that you really had that conversation. I don't know whether you feel like everyone else would say, oh, they're doing great. Or whether you feel like when you turn your back, everybody says, oh, what a mess that person is. And they don't have the access to what you have about yourself. I don't know where you stand. But Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save those who are broken. He came to rescue those whose life was falling apart, crumbling down, whether anybody else noticed it or not. But when you stand next to Jesus and you see the brokenness of your life, Jesus Christ came to save those very people. You see, the question that we need to finish with is this question that asks, have you ever been saved? Now, that's a church word we use. And sometimes we use church words so much that it just kind of glazes right over. But the, the question is, have you ever been rescued from the mess that your life is in spiritually? Because Jesus Christ comes to save sinners even the chief of all sinners, the foremost, the person at the front of the center line. And if he come to save the person at the front of the line, he has come to save every person all the way back. Here's the good news. Once you're saved, you stay saved, and the saving never wears off. It's a Jesus thing. 
every once in a while, sometimes we'll get a little bit confused because it's like, well, I feel like I was saved like back then, but man, life's had some twists and turns since then. Listen, if Jesus did it, if you allowed him to save you and to rescue you, and you honestly came to him and said, would you save me? Then you are living on him, not on you. And so the twists and turns sometimes cost us the benefits of being his son, but it never takes away our salvation. So if you have been saved, you are still saved and rescued. You can't be unsaved or unrescued. But I would also tell you that there's no substitute for the salvation of Jesus. You know, sometimes we, we, we like choices and say, well, I might do this, but I'm going to go with this plan instead. We love choices. And sometimes we come spiritually and we think, you know what? Ah, the Jesus thing is okay, but I think I might try something else. There is no something else. There is nothing else that will deal with the sin, the brokenness that we have in our lives. No one else has said, I will come to save sinners of whom even the chief. It's only Jesus who does that. So the question is, have you been saved? I want us to pray in just a moment. And I want you to just spend a moment in that question. Because if the Spirit of God who is alive and real and speaks to us, sometimes we don't recognize what it is, but it is a, there's a pull inside of us that's heavy. If that Spirit is speaking to you today, what I, I want you to hear is I want you to hear His voice. And I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a moment. It's a prayer that if he's speaking to you about, man, this rescue that you've never experienced before, then this is what I want you to pray. Dear Jesus, I've never really thought of it in this way before. In fact, I haven't spent much time thinking about it at all. But there's no question that my life needs rescue. My spiritual life is broken, and I'm a sinner. And I don't understand how it all works. But if you say that you'll save me, will you save me today? And I want you to be in charge of my life from this day forward. I pray this in your name. 